Wild Precious Life is supported in part by Story Studio, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Learn more and find a class today at storystudio.com. And we are brought to you in part by Exile in Bookville, located in the historic Fine Arts Building on Chicago's Michigan Avenue. Come in and check out our recommended reads from talented booksellers, authors, and music folks from across the multiverse. At Exile in Bookville, we believe that books and music are synonymous and carry that over into our store. Drop by or shop online at exileinbookville.com. Have you ever stalked anyone? I don't mean in a creepy go through their trash or stand outside of their house in the darkness kind of way. If you're doing that, it's definitely time to get some help. By stalking, I just mean a girl crush. Someone whose life or career you always pay attention to. Whose success might make you a little bit jealous, but mostly just fiercely proud because you really adore this person. One of my favorite things about this show is I get to talk to all my crushes. Today, that's Rebecca Mackay. I first encountered Rebecca's work when my dad was sick. Dad was going through chemo, and I read this book about other people facing sickness and sorrow. The Great Believers is about the AIDS epidemic. And right away when I tell people that, they're like, oh yeah, that was a sad time. But if we're being honest, until very recently, most of us had absolutely no freaking idea what it was like to live on the daily in the presence of a largely invisible virus that could kill you. We keep talking about COVID as unprecedented, but it's not really. This has happened before. The only difference is that communities fought against AIDS while simultaneously feeling shame for who they were and why they had it. Rebecca manages to write all of this into an incredible book whose main characters become as familiar as family. So let me tell you a little about her. Rebecca Mackay is the Chicago-based author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred-Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. The Great Believers was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and received the ALA Carnegie Medal and the LA Times Book Prize, among many other honors. Rebecca has two young daughters. She does not run marathons or do cartwheels, but she does know how to make marshmallows. She was an elementary Montessori teacher for a dozen years before the publication of her first book. Rebecca holds an MA in literature from the Middlebury College Breadloaf School of English. She is on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada College and Northwestern University, and she is artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Rebecca Mackay, my crush, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. We are so excited to have you here. I'm not going to lie, I feel a little bit like a freshman talking to a senior. I'm a little nervous um, <laughs> because I want to ask you questions like, um, remember, remember the time when you, when you wrote that cool book? That was <laughs> so I'm going to try to ask you coherent things and use words yeah. and maybe even sentences. Um, Ooh, but in case, like sentences. People, <laughs> in case there are people who are not familiar with your kick-ass awesomeness as a writer and a human, I'm wondering, would you please just introduce yourself and tell us the story of you? I've been writing forever. I was, my, my parents were linguistics professors 
And I was born when they were in their 40s. And my only sister is 10 years older. So I was just very solitary as a little kid. Our vacations were to go to linguistics conferences. That was kind of trippy. (laughs) You know, playing just kind of turned into writing, if that makes sense. You make up stories with your little dolls, your little people, your stuffed animals. And then once I could write, I was writing them down. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I taught Montessori Elementary School for 12 years, mostly grades four through six, but for a while, grades one through three. And that whole time I was writing um, first short stories and then started uh, working on this novel that I was afraid to call a novel for a really long time. And People would ask what I was working on and I would call it this longer thing that I'm thinking about. So I got, I got a master's degree in English literature, just, you know, not in creative writing, but, um, my, met my husband in graduate school. He's an English teacher. Um, so we actually scandal. No, 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 no. He teaches high school. We met in graduate school as as fellow students, as classmates. He was not your English teacher. He was not my English teacher. No, man, that would be fun though. Um, but we, uh, we uh, ever since we got married, which was for me in my early 20s, we live on the campus of the boarding school where he teaches. Um, so we live in a dorm, which is kind of fun. Then, yeah, I, you know, had two kids somewhere in there with him. Eventually, uh, you know, published my first book and then took this huge plunge um, of quitting my, you know, after that book came out, like a year after that book came out, going, I think I need to quit teaching elementary school just for travel and writing and everything. But that was incredibly scary. And we did not know if we'd be able to eat and uh, things have, you know, steadily improved since then. And yeah, fourth book really was the breakout for me. That's the great believers. And then I've got another book. I got edits on this next book due in what's today in one month and four days. Is that terrifying? So is that the, I don't know. That's a very abbreviated story of my life. So you were teaching Montessori simultaneously trying to write that longer thing that you weren't calling a novel. Yeah, basically I wrote, if, if I actually look back at that, I really wrote my first three books while I was still teaching. I definitely wrote my first full novel, which is The Borrowers. I wrote almost all of the stories in my story collection, which would end up being my third book, but was kind of done second, if that makes sense. And then... I had gotten maybe, I got at least, let's say like half of my second novel, The 100 Year House Done, when I was teaching also. So how long, if you add it up, how long did you work and write that first book? Because I know that's usually what people want to know mm. is is they want to know. Right, right, right. Because most people are doing that. They're writing and working. And, and totally. one does not always feel like it's in the service of the other. So um, the pace tends to be a little slower. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like calendar time, 10 years, but that included months and months each school year where I really wouldn't get to it. It included this period of time where I completely abandoned it and started my second novel because I was convinced that it was unfixable. It included having a two baby, well, really one baby in that time, but you know, like as we sold that book when I was pregnant. So I, I, I finished my copy edits on the borrower the night before I went in for my scheduled C-section. And they had like sped up the editing process so that we could do this. Um, (laughs) But they were so worried. And I was like, no, listen, I was like, it's really done. I'm just going over it again. Like if I, if I went into labor on my own here, like my husband could press send, like it's, it's, but they were like, 
really freaked about cutting it that close. And then of course the whole, it was really sweet because the whole penguin office was like very invested in this baby and wanted to see pictures. It was really cute. That's so. adorable. That should, I feel like that should be on the book somewhere. Like which it should be, this <laughs> book was Why did I not mention that? It's not indicated here. Maybe the, the car no, no. at the bottom, which I've always taken to be you or your, your character. Right. Maybe that's actually you en route that's, to the C-section. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> At five in the morning for the scheduled C-section, yes. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember what it felt like when you decided to stop teaching in order to be a writer full-time? Did that feel triumphant? Did that feel terrifying? It was mostly terrifying. Um, I realized I really had to do it because I was getting invitations to festivals or to do a lecture somewhere, not constantly or anything, but, you know, once in a while. And these were things that were happening during the school year. I also felt honestly, like I wasn't really free to write write what I wanted to write while I was teaching children and their parents would read it. If that makes sense. The borrower, I mean, ironically, the borrower, that first book is about someone kidnapping a child. So it's really funny that they didn't like all. Kidnappings, if I'm going to list them. But I can see how that might, the administration might look askance at too many kidnappings. I also, teaching young kids is great to do in your 20s <laughs> when you've got a lot of energy. People who do it longer than that, I don't know how on earth they could possibly do it. I, I can't. I'm, and I know I have friends who do, including teaching really young kids, but they, they are a different species than I am. Do you remember where those early stories came from? Did they float down to you during circle time? Did you catch wind of them and write them on napkins over right. lunch? Like, how did those early stories find you? Um, I never really know how I come up with things. It's really uh, kind of a barrage of possibilities throughout the day. I, I think in this, you know, I think we all are capable of having an overactive imagination. The, you know, you're home alone and you hear a weird noise you just go to like 17 different scenarios of what that could be. And some of them play out fully, right? I'm one of those people, and this is not a prerequisite for being a writer at all, but I am one of those people who has that at like every hour of the day. It doesn't have to be something scary. It's just like anything launches itself into multiple story possibilities. In college, I was taking a creative writing course from this like wonderful kind of cranky older southern professor lady she was very she was just very cranky and funny but she out of nowhere it was like I was passing her in the hall one day and this was you know I was in her workshop at the time and I probably had just turned something in or so there was some context but she pointed a finger at me and she said you are never gonna run out of stories and I was like I took it which I think it really was as a tremendous compliment but I also, in, in retrospect, I was like, oh, my God, was she, was she a witch? Did she hex me? Like, was that, a, was that a threat or a compliment? I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> No, it was like a witch's, a witch's blessing, which I think is sorcery. Yes. That was She was gifting you something that you already knew that you had, but you didn't realize. I think that was kind of it. It remains, I think, one of my favorite. It might be my favorite compliment that I've ever gotten. I mean, it's, it's very specific. And it was just, it kind of was, I think I liked it because I felt like it was true. So just so you know, in my mind, that woman is Flannery O'Connor, and I'm not even going to check the timeline because I just, I'm going to go with it. Like, so she's the one yes. who's letting you know. Let's say I was in college in the 50s. <laughs> totally. That's, that's I love excellent. It. 
Um, yeah. So I, I, of course, have met you. I don't always interview folks I know on the show, but it's super fun that I that I have. I know you. Um, but I don't think I've ever told you how I was introduced to your work, which was no. um, I was taking an online writing class because like you, I was trying to figure out how to be a mom and a working person and, and just juggling it all. I was like, you know what I'll do? I will take a class with something like six scenes in six weeks, and that way I'll have deadlines, mm, and I will create things. Nice. And on the first day of class, the instructor assigned us this book, right? She's like, we're going to read a book together. It's called The Great Believers, and you'll need to buy it. Oh. And I was um, I was pissed because I'm like, I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to read this. I can't even write this stuff. I can't be reading. And I almost dropped oh the God. class over this book and but it turns out I'm I have a hard time not listening to what teachers you're the daughter of linguistics folks so I'm sure anytime yes. someone orders you in a linguistic type way you must do it well my my, <laughs> my parents were teachers so I have to like do what the teacher says um so of course I pick up this book called The Great Believers I I knew it was a story about the AIDS epidemic I had read I had read the band played on and I'd seen Angels in America. And I felt like as I opened this book, I felt like, oh, she's telling a story I already know. Aww. And of course, which is absolute bullshit because I share this with you because I'm embarrassed by how ignorant I was, one, of the time period. And two, like it, it, you've you've read a book on World War II, so you're not going to read another book on World War II. Like the idea right, that, right, that right, you could... Right. Because you've read one thing about one period of time that you somehow feel like you're a master of it, which is yeah. nonsensical. So I took this class where they made us read your book, and I tried to bellyache about it, and then I opened it, and I was riveted, like I'm sure 99.9% mm. .9 of people are when they open The Great Believers. I've read it three times, and I give it to everyone I know, and I make my book clubs read it. Aww. And they all Thank at first you. are like, this is really long. And then no one – they only do that until they open it. And then no one ever mentions it again, <laughs> right? Um, and I was just confronted with the egregiousness, egregiousness of this time that I lived through but did not mm -hmm. – didn't know that I didn't know. So you're telling a story that is simultaneously familiar and quite strange. Is that what you set out to do? No. I set out to write a novel about this old lady who had been an artist model in Paris um, and uh, – <laughs> Then um, that became a subplot and the book became a book about AIDS in Chicago in the 80s. But I was really fundamentally driven by the characters and their story and, and AIDS stuff, that kind of thing came in as I as the story needed it to. And I'm actually still stuck with Nora. So for folks who have not read it, I'm not giving anything away to say that there's an older woman in the story Whose name is Nora, who is, as you say, or, or was involved in the artist's world in, in Paris. Um, oh, gosh, would it have been like the 19-teens, 1920s? Yeah, it's like before and after World War One. Like she, she leaves Paris during the war, but other than that, she's there. So, so yeah. How yeah. does a book, and what we're describing now is what I would consider to be a, a subplot in the book. How does, mm -hmm. how does a sub, how does a book that sets out to be about <laughs> this woman Gets, yeah. Can you describe the jump? Because I'm, I'm, I'm stuck with how you get from that to this. I had this idea. I wanted this woman looking back from the end of her life at her time in Paris around that era. She couldn't have lived past the 80s, just mathematically. So Got now it. I have her in the 80s. 
And I need her to be talking about the art that she's collected and talking to someone in the art world. And this is how all of her stories are going to come out. So now I have this second character who's someone in the art world in the 1980s. So I'm then thinking, okay, I've been really interested in the AIDS epidemic my whole life. I was a child of the 80s. It's just like a lens through which I always have seen the world. That's going to be the other element here, kind of maybe a subplot. That's what's going on in the background of this other of this guy's life. Many things then changed, one of which is, you know, realizing that originally I had it, it was going to be all these letters she was writing to him or all she's sitting down and telling in these stories. I don't like books like that particularly. I mean, I can. So some of my, honestly, this is terrible. So some of my favorite books are like that. But <laughs> I, I originally, even though as I started drafting, I will say she was still a much bigger part of the book. It was really going to be kind of a two-hander. Like both of them got equal time. At some point, I guess I decided it was entirely his point of view, that, which makes sense, right? Like the person hearing the stories needs to be the one who changes. And the person who changes is going to be your main character. The person who's changed by the narrative. If you're going to put a narrative within a narrative, the person who's changed by that, that's your point of view. So it's his point of view. I end up starting, you know, with him before he ever meets her. And like his life just got really engaging. And also I was doing all this research on AIDS in Chicago. I was learning all this stuff. Not like... I need to cram this in there to educate people, but just like, wow, this is a, a lot of information that sparked a lot of thought and ideas from me, things that I hadn't known that I was inspired to write about, right? Or things that I did know and I was angry about them or sad about them that, you know, really were wanted to get out of my writing. She got less and less. And then at a certain point, I was about a hundred pages of the way in, I realized I actually needed this third storyline, which was the present day. Um, I was writing in 2015. It is 2015. 2015 feels like ancient history now. Right? <laughs> yeah. The things we Time didn't has gone know. Screwy. Right? Yeah. But oh so at the point where I started folding that in, it was already way too long. And now I'm like, I have less and less time for Nora. I have less and less space for her. She's actually not the most important part of this book. That shifting gravity. I mean, it's something I think that's just it's so important to hold on loosely to your original conception of the story. Because if you hold on so tightly, it's like you're holding on to the idea you had before you knew anything about this world and before you knew these characters and before you knew what you were doing. Why are you listening to your younger, dumber self? <laughs> right? <laughs> you just, you gotta, you gotta be able to loosen, you know, to, to, to let things go. I mean, within reason, right? Because um, I will say, like, I work with students all the time who it's, a, it's basically a, a tool for self-sabotage, where they're like, well, I wrote 200 pages of the way in as a novel, but what if it were a Broadway musical? <laughs> yeah. Okay, just finish the book. That's amazing. <laughs> so I think Ann Patchett describes some of what you're talking about as sort of the butterfly phase, where the idea is sort of, mm. it's flying above your head, and you're Ooh. looking at how the wings catch the light and it's swooping and the blue, you notice the blue sort of changes and you're thinking about it. And then she talks about what it feels like to go ahead and start committing that to the page. And in order to get the butterfly to stick still, oh, you really got to stick a pin right through it. And then it's yeah. dead. And she's oh, like, God. and you will never again see what yeah. you saw up there. All you're going to have is the memory of the light hitting the wing. And what you've got to work with is this thing that's now standing still. It's and you've got to get at it it's it's dead 
And so you've oh got to get God. at it from a different way. And I was like, yeah. that's a horrible thing. Never kill the butterfly. Well, then <laughs> it never sits still enough for you to lock it down. And then it is a Broadway musical and it is a, a one-act play. And... Yeah, right. It just changes and changes. Yeah, um, I love that. That's, yeah. No, that's, that's seriously. You know, the, the first, you, know, you, you finally commit to writing something down and you you go from the platonic ideal of the thing that you had in your head, the best it's ever going to be because it's so vague, right? You go straight from that to the worst it's ever going to be. There's like a word vomit that doesn't make any sense. It's in the page. And you're supposed to like be okay with that emotionally, right? And then just slowly spend 10 years, five years, whatever, working it back vaguely towards being less terrible. And it's, yeah, it's it's really hard. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. to think about how doubt might have shown up in this project. I think doubt shows up for all writers in, in many ways, like, right, the voice that says, I don't think you can do that. And, and Annie Lamott talks about just put, turn their voices up really, really loud and then turn them down and just, they'll just write it anyway. Yeah. She has some metaphor about put, imagining them being rats in a jar. <laughs> exactly. It's like a whole thing. I love, yeah, I love it. I picture them yes, in like yeah. one of those pastry, like one of those, I don't know, it looks like an upside down bowl that you put over them and you can't hear them anymore Ooh, and they're yeah they're there but you can't yeah. hear them but so I'm thinking about doubt doubt shows up for writers anyway right you're not sure but th- there would have been another layer of doubt that you must have been contending mm-hmm. with as who am I to tell this story what gives me yep. I mean I could be wrong I, it's possible that you're a gay man in Chicago and it's fine if you are mm-hmm. I, I salute that but how did doubt show up well, in, in terms of your your authority yeah. to, to be the one to tell the story. Yeah. I talk about it as a healthy sense of terror. Any fiction writer is going to be writing across difference constantly, right? It becomes significantly more fraught in many, many different ways the more you are writing from a position of privilege or overrepresentation about people who are underrepresented or whose voices or experiences are not privileged, right? So for one thing, I'm not a gay man. For another thing, I'm healthy. Those are two really, you know, huge differences there. There are similarities too. I'm in Chicago, right? I was not around this scene in the 80s, but I was a child in the 80s. I was really absorbent in the 80s. I think that helped me in a lot of ways. So when you're going to make a leap like that, hubris would be your worst possible enemy, right? Because you're going to end up like the unknown unknowns when you go into a thing like that. If you go in thinking you know, you are going to screw it up so badly thinking you can do it yourself, 
would be a huge mistake. You know, I interviewed dozens of people for this at great length and they went over the manuscript and, you know, that whole stuff, if I had felt like I can just empathize my way there, would have been a disaster. There's also, you know, I did need to ask myself the question of even if I can do this very well, even if I do everything right, should I do it? That's a totally different question, right? In this particular case, that was easy to answer, though. I think this would have been, I would have had a very different answer if I were entering this in a contest or publishing in a journal where I might be taking up space that could have gone to someone with a direct personal story to tell. The way book publishing works is that money follows money, success follows success. The more copies my book sells, the better my book does the more the publishing industry is willing to publish another book and another book and another book about the AIDS epidemic or LGBTQ voices because they're seeing the proof of concept that, yeah, your aunt's book club is willing to read some really queer stuff here. And 20 years ago, that, you know, maybe wasn't the case. That healthy terror, that made it a significantly better book than if I had tried to remain unaware, if I had just given myself pep talks. It's that's easy to, you know, easier to say when it's my fourth book, for sure, right? I think someone starting out, all they need to do is just write and tune out any negativity. But also, I would not have attempted this with my first book, just to, be, just to put it out there, right? <laughs> like, high level of difficulty, high risk, high reward, probably not going to be my first shot out of the gate. I think Naomi Munavira said that you become the writer you need to be to write the book you're trying to write. And I've heard versions of that, that you you aren't at the very beginning. You're actually not that writer quite yet, but you're going to then acquire the skills and you're going to speak to the people and you're going to do the research and you're going to make the detours and the dead ends. You're going to listen to that, those critiques. And, And along the way, you will become the writer you need to be to write this book. But it's interesting to hear you say that the borrower could not have been the great believers. What was the reception like for the great believers in Chicago, especially within the gay community? I mean, I know there's not one point of view, but by and large, how was the book received there in your hometown? Better than I could have possibly dreamed in a million years. One of the things that happens in, in the great believers is that early on, there's a very negative hospital experience. This character, Nico, whose memorial service starts the book he was put in a suburban hospital without its own AIDS unit that was really ill-equipped to deal with an AIDS case. It's early. um, He's treated very badly. And later in the book, we spent a lot of time at Illinois Masonic Hospital in Chicago, which had an astoundingly beautiful AIDS unit that I heard from so many people, just like, despite what it was, was just a place of joy. It was this incredible community. That's there for contrast, among other things, but it's also because this is real, right? I've had, I think this is a few people who picked up because they were, for instance, nurses in the 80s, picked it up, read the first couple chapters and gone, oh, she's painting us all as uncaring people, and then put it down 30 pages in. And then are very upset, like, that's not how it was. Um, And it's like, well, honey, just keep reading. (laughs) But that's honestly, I mean, that's, I'm sure there are outlying opinions I haven't heard. But honestly, like, the absolute most vocal supporters that I've had all along are the very readers that I was the most worried about, which is very specifically gay men in Chicago who lived through this directly, who lost people or are HIV positive or whatever it is. Those have been the people who 
will ask me to sign five books because they're giving them out to their younger friends who didn't live through this and they want them to know this stuff. I think at one point um, someone says in The Great Believers that the disease feels like a judgment, that to become mm-hmm. sick in the 1980s, it, it felt like if if you were viewed through a conservative lens, it was viewed that you deserve this thing that you got. This was mm-hmm. God's hand or... Right. Or that it was somehow um, associated with you deserve this thing, and I and when I read it again the first time, I just thought that's cruel oh, yeah. and inhumane and awful, and I can't believe people ever divided over over illness like that. And then, of course, now I when I read it again, I thought, oh, yeah, we we do we we divide over these things that could have united us. Yeah, um, right. Well, I mean, interesting things happen when we're afraid. Yeah. You know, it's we're not our best when we're afraid. No. no, I don't think we are. So you said that you have another book that you're writing now. I think you were the person who I heard say that whenever people ask you about your book, you should have a fake book that you tell them about. So this will be you yeah. have an optional. So <laughs> you can either tell us about the real book that's next or you can tell us about the yes. fake book that you're writing and how it's a kind of a combination of the hunt for red October right. and mean girls Oh yeah, or whatever. It, you know what? It almost kind of is. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it's not that far off. Um, it's almost, no, you know what? It's like a combo between, it's like a combo between red Dawn and mean no. girls. Um, <laughs> I would totally read that book. It's not really. Yeah. It, but it, I mean, that's, that's closer anyway. So here's, here, this is the other story. Um, so the preface the prologue to all of this is this is adult literary fiction. It is a serious, angry feminist novel. Ooh. That being said, boarding school murder mystery. <sighs> so that's what we're dealing wow. with. <laughs> well, first off, you had me at boarding school. Yeah. Well, you had me at literary fiction and adult, but you definitely had me at boarding school and <laughs> mystery. Right, wow, right, so it right. is kind of like Red right. Dawn meets Mean Girls. I was just making up the hunt for See? an October part, but... <laughs> I, I've, I've loved that, and I've told that to any writer person I know going into the holidays. So Naomi Munavira Muna, Muna was talking about this psychosexual thriller she's writing, which we decided was like the big chill meets the Babysitter's Club. And so I, I, I love the idea that you should have a book when people ask you what you're writing that you just say. And if they really care, they'll scratch the surface of it. and you can. But in general, folks are really just like, oh, cool. And then they go get something to eat. Yeah. That's it. Well, and this is where I especially the reason I recommend this, especially for students, especially if it's your first book and you have that toxic relative or whatever, and they're just going to do something. They're not even going to know they're doing it where you're going to describe your actual book and they're going to be like, oh, it's just like this Mm. other thing that's out there. That's really good. Have you read it? Or they're going to say, why would you want to write about that? Or they're just going to be like, huh? And it's just going to piss you off and hurt your feelings. Or they ask too many questions and you just feel like silly, you know, so yeah, it's it's nice to have you just yeah, you make up a an absolutely cockamamie thing and then um you have fun and just you know see how many details you can come up with and see if you can get them to buy it. And maybe they know you're kidding. You know, maybe you're doing it all with like very tongue in cheek, like it's about a sex ring for nuns, and they're like, Okay. <laughs> right? But like just just try it. I love this. Well, I've I've been practicing calling mine the catcher in the rye meets my best friend's wedding. Ooh. Because I don't even know what that would be. 
but I'm I'm picturing Julia Roberts chasing Holden Caulfield. And I don't know. I would see where they run. Um, but that's yes. just my that's my fake book. Yeah, the headmaster's daughter that he took to some football game or something. It's like right. they made some pact. Dermot McDermott. I love. That's one of my yes. favorites. <laughs> Dermot McDermott is in that book, isn't he? I. You know, it comes from something a friend said. She was, she just calls all handsome actors Dermot McDermott. And so I was like, oh, I'm, de- I'm definitely using that. <laughs> I love that. For folks who read the book, they can find that midway. <laughs> it's an Easter egg. Oh, delightful. Well, I can totally chat writing with you all day, but they don't let me. So yeah. I'm going to do a wrap up. We always end okay. with some icebreakers, like a camp oh, cool. counselor, but at the end. Um, so you could just, yeah, these yeah. are just a few multiple choice um, and you just pick one. So um, dogs or cats? Dogs coffee or tea this is funny because i very unusually for me have tea right here but coffee but it's decaf i can't handle caffeine and I'm, I'm the one writer who is not fueled by de- by caffeine how interesting well that's because you've yeah. you you're fueled by flannery o'connor the ghost of flannery yes. o'connor's witch yes. you're fueled by an totally. endless cauldron of stories so who needs caffeine that's how i see it <laughs> <laughs> um, mountains or beach Ooh, both? Can I have both? Um, mountains. All right. We'll allow it. Mountains. Cake or pie? Uh, pie. Um, are you an early bird or a night owl? Very much a night owl. I haunt the house as well. Um, are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the band-aids are? Um, I think the risk taker should know where the band-aids are, just to be clear. <laughs> That's who exactly who should know where the band-aids are. Um, I am a risk taker, unfortunately. I believe this. What's something quirky that folks don't know about you? Likes, loves, pet peeves. Mm. Mm. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm really into astrology. My my parents <gasps> were not only both linguistics professors, but both semi-professional astrologers. And I grew up going to a lot of astrology stuff. And I kind of really love it. I don't know that I really believe in it, but I do. I mean, it's like I don't, I can't justify my belief in it. And I wouldn't be heartbroken if it weren't true. It's like, you don't risk anything, right? It's not like you have to go to weekly services and like tithe or something. So it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I used to love to read those, like, who's your love match, your astrological love match. (laughs) My husband and I have been married for like 20 years, more than that. But Mm -hmm. we can only have a a short-lived hot, steamy romance. Uh, So when it all comes crashing to an end, you know. So you have to look at the whole birth chart. (laughs) <laughs> what right. time you were born Mars, in the longitude and latitude. Mars was rising. Yeah. Mars ascending. Yep. Those things. <laughs> Those things. I love it. Um, what's one of your go-to songs? Ooh. Ooh. I can't tell you. I, 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 I go-to songs. Um, I don't know. I can tell you what's been in my head today. Does that work? Yep. Is Another Suitcase in Another Hall from Evita by Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Don't cry for me, Argentina. I I won tickets to that show off the radio in 19... Back when you could do that. Um, Yeah. I had to borrow a car to get the tickets. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't thought about that show in ages. That's great. Are you a musical theater person just in general? Like, I I think of an Evita answer as... Two kinds of people in this world, thems who are and thems who aren't. I am, but also my my 14-year-old really is full throttle right now. So there's a, a Sirius XM Broadway channel and it's on in our car constantly. So that's where this uh that's where this came from today. But yeah. 
Excellent. Um, do you have a favorite book or a favorite movie <laughs> you would share? Both. Mm, I have a really problematic favorite movie. Excellent. Um, which is Midnight in Paris. It's a Woody Allen movie. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Anyway, um, you know what's really fun? I'll, I'll tell you something. So originally, this is this got cut out of The Great Believers. I originally had Woody Allen being the one filming a movie in Paris in 2015. And like these protests against him and all this other stuff going on. And I, I was so proud of myself because I made a rhyme in French. Because you know who they're, fil- they're filming on Ile Saint-Louis? Um, I had these people holding signs and chanting, pédophile, quitte l'île. Um, oh, like pedophile leave the island. pedophile um, humor. <laughs> I mean, but it all got cut, huh? Yeah. It did. It really did. It really did. Um, so I can't say it's my favorite movie. It's just like when someone says that, then I'm like, what's the worst thing I could say? It's this really bad it's this movie that I shouldn't like that I do. Um, and well, then we um, go, no, as a writer, you want to go to that party. Right. As a writer, I want to get out of that car and I want to go through that door and I want to be there and I just want to oh, see yeah. I want to see Zelda, so like, right? And I want to yes. see Ernest boxing someone and you just you want to yes. I want to be in that room where those things are happening. And right? so yeah. How my I brain works. That. I know. Um favorite book, this is really, really hard to say, but um I think my go to is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Um, which is just um really uh you don't get tired of but then i've only read it like twice can you say a book is your favorite if you've only read it twice this is, i start judges. to have these existential questions <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever you want this is a podcast I we, know. We can, it's all good uh what's your favorite ice cream mm, chocolate just chocolate dark chocolate yeah yeah chocolate mcchocolate okay. yeah <laughs> i'm i'm right there with you okay and last one if we were to take a picture of you really happy doing something you love what would we see you doing mm, probably just like honestly like watching a movie with my kids I feel very um I feel like this this past year has been a, a big recalibration for me like I love to travel I was loving all this travel that was coming my way for the book and it was great and then it just was a screeching halt. and um I'm trying to be more just like snuggy with my kids and like you know Wow. Thank you, Rebecca Mackay. Thank you for coming on the show today and Absolutely. for writing a book that I've read multiple times that makes me chuckle mm-hmm. and cry every damn time. Oh, um, you know, a book that's taught, I think, everyone how to not just how to craft a story, but how to live a life. Uh, a book that makes me examine prejudices, the, the kinds that you don't realize that you're holding and uh, reminds you of the battles that are worth fighting. Um, folks, my guest today has been the brilliant Rebecca Mackay, author of several books, which we'll put links to on the show notes. Um, you can pick these titles up at an independent bookstore near you. And to everyone listening, we are wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrub and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. 
two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!